Welcome to Savage Minds. I'm your host, Julian Vigo. Today's guest is Michael Conroy. Michael has worked in secondary education in England for 16 years. In recent years, he has set up a training company, Men at Work, and developed a training program for professionals. The aim of this is to support those working with boys and young men in unpicking, by means of systematic dialogues, the social influences, values, and beliefs which lead to sexism, misogyny, and a range of harmful behaviors. Michael is also a youth mental health trainer and is specialized in suicide prevention. Michael is based in the English Midlands, but works across the UK. I welcome Michael Conroy to Savage Minds. We've had interactions over the years on Twitter. When I say something mm -hmm. like that, it makes it sound like we flamed at each other. But we've had friendly interactions on Twitter. Yeah, yeah. And I've noticed you're coming to the debate on gender ideology. And then you formed Men at Work. Could you tell our listeners about what Men at Work is and how did you come to form this program? Sure. It's uh, Well, I've worked in uh, secondary education in England for about 16 years now. Um, and in the course of that, I've, I've lot, met lots of very interesting people uh, and kind of got involved in various programs about well-being and, and safeguarding and, you know, ch child uh, yeah, child safeguarding and well-being. And that's led into various areas such as um, you know, being aware of domestic abuse and the impact that has on young people, and also about uh, issues arising between young people in schools, whether that be you know, kind of the the beginnings of coercive type control, um, the whole range of teenage behaviours really, which would be familiar in most countries, I think, in that age group between eleven and eighteen, eleven and nineteen. Uh, so I've got a really strong interest in safeguarding and in being proactive in that rather than just responsive. Um, about six years ago, I met some people who were delivering a program called the Freedom Program, which I don't know if you're familiar with, it operates in, in Britain. Uh, that's for women who are in abusive relationships. It um, supports them in exiting those relationships or it's certainly in understanding the dynamics of them. And I find that um, a really important time uh, that made me reassess a lot of uh, my own behavior and my own thoughts, assumptions. And I just, I mean, I'm 53 years old. I, 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 I'm very late to this, <laughs> um, but as I say, about six, maybe seven years ago, I suddenly uh, realized that I needed to be much more active in um, critiquing masculinity and crit critiquing um, the patriarchal structure um, of which I'm a beneficiary and, and, a, and a participant in some ways, as, as all men are. Um, I just wanted to get active and I, I do the, the best I can with the knowledge I have, which is limited, but I, which is why I joined Twitter to try and, try and find wise voices. And, and they do exist. Uh, but of course, there are many, many uh, unwise voices too. Uh, and so it's been a really, um, the last six years on social media particularly, has been a really uh, ooh, tumultuous and, and uh, disturbing uh, time, understanding the, the nature of the conflicts 
uh, around gender per se, not just about gender ideology or gender whatever it might be, just, just the way that we are constructed to be social men and social women by millennia of uh, cultural codes. And, uh, and the very, very differing views around that, as, as you will know <laughs> yourself. Uh, well, I was going to say, when you said you were 53, I was going to say, but what age do you identify as? <laughs> uh, about 70, I think. Yeah. <laughs> if, if identify means feel like, yeah. <laughs> On your site, it states that Men at Work seeks to affect real cultural change. We need to work, in, in order to do that, we need to work imaginatively with a sense of purpose and conviction, getting to the roots of sexist views and behaviors. This means looking upstream at the values and beliefs that boys and young men are exposed to by society and enabling them to find healthy, safe, respectful, and ultimately more freeing pathways into adulthood. So you also mentioned masculinity a moment ago. Now, mm -hmm. as you know, this gender debate is very linked to some of these terms we've just used in that one of the major actors in this is Judith Butler, who is guilted with the task of having created the transgender narrative. That's debatable, but certainly she laid the groundwork. And in her first book, Gender Trouble, she talks about masculinity and femininity as performative valences within culture. In fact, if you recall before 2000, when people spoke about gender, it was in reference to masculine and feminine. It wasn't in relationship to men and women. Prior to 2000, within everyday language and academic language, gender did not mean man, woman. It meant masculine, feminine. Then when you mm -hmm. mentioned masculinity in terms of your work at Men at Work, I'm thinking, okay, what does this mean? Because gender is a social construction. Hence, when I lived in the southern parts of Morocco and there were Saharawiya there, you would find men wearing kahol in their eyes, like an eyeliner and long flowing yeah. robes. In the Western context, this is feminine, not masculine. Conversely, in Morocco, when women are decked out in large-fitting, wide-fitting jalaba to not reveal their bodily contours, which is not at all the tight-fitting clothing that women in the West wear. In fact, women would view Moroccan women as not, not so feminine when at least they're on the streets outside of their homes. So masculine and feminine are as much about vestiture as they are about performance, as they are about culture. So... When you say masculinity, I also understand that you're not referring to that, that you're referring to the negative valences associated with masculinity that many feminists say male violence, masculine privilege or male privilege. How can we understand masculinity if it is going to be in the feminist terms? And I shouldn't globalize feminism because there are feminists who critique this. I just watched Jermaine Greer the other day on this, and she does critique this kind of tethering a feminist discourse to a hatred of the masculine. But how can we understand what masculinity is without imprisoning it to this space of always guilty? The way that masculinity can maybe have some kind of life that's apart from even being tethered to male bodies, and being tethered to criminality, for instance? Uh, yeah, really, really interesting question. Uh, my 
fundamental position is that masculinity is um, antithetical to humanity, to a complex and inclusive humanity um, that is available to both male and female human beings. So masculinity, in, in, in my usage, and, and you know, langu language is not uniformly understood. We just need to use our terms consistently and be prepared to explain them. So I'm, I'm happy to do, uh, explain my use of the word masculinity there, which is um, a, a code or a set of codes uh, which give privilege, which uh, impose restrictions and which uh, place boundaries on the behaviour of male humans. Uh, so masculinity is a kind of a, is a method of collective socialization of males to to sustain patriarchal condition uh, and, and it's all uh, masculinity doesn't exist unless we consider it as a contrast with femininity both of these things can become untethered from physical bodies because they're never part of them they were never part of them they've just been imposed upon them uh, so yeah uh, women can perform things which are typically masculine and vice versa men can do things which are you know, whether it be clothing or any any kind of habitus, really, which is uh, traditionally connected with femininity. But as you as you rightly point out, Julian, that that depends where you are in the world and also when you are in the world, because masculinity and femininity are not constants. They completely shift. They they evolve and they shift they, in terms of uh, what they look like. Um, but the function is always to be mutually contrastive. Um, and so the function of any masculinity in most, in most cultures that I'm aware of, I, have, I do not have comprehensive knowledge of all human culture. <laughs> um, I, 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 will, I will say that very clearly, but what, what I am aware of, whether in the current world or in, uh, you know, in, in through history, through the lens of historians, is that masculinity, that the code of masculinity has been one which is not certain, which is intended not to be in the best interests of women, uh, but it's also, I believe, not in the best genuine interests of male human beings, um, men in, in, in short term. So, so yeah, it's a. I, I use the word masculinity to mean the codes of behavior expectations permissions and limitations and privileges um, that come with those uh, that are routinely and traditionally attached to males of the human species but which because they are conceived antithetically to to femininity uh, are by their nature uh, inhuman and, and I think not in the long-term interests of the human species um, to, 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 to sustain. So that's what I mean. I don't mean that, um, that uh, the problem is with language, as, as you know, is that people, if you get 20 people you're talking about the same thing, they mean they understand different things by really basic terms. Uh, and as you say, gender is used uh, interchangeably by the same individuals uh, as sex they just don't reflect upon it or it depends on the context uh, government institutions use the word gender when they really mean sex uh, and in the past say in the 1940s and 50s that might not have really mattered because 
just about everybody understood it as a full synonym of sex. So when it was asking for gender, it meant sex. But then as the, with the, uh, uh, the arising of the discourse around, about, around gender in the 70s, 80s, 90s onwards, increasingly so now, um, it, the choice of word is a political act, whether you're conscious of it or not. Um, so, I, so by masculinity, I mean codes of behavior and not material beings. My mind drifts towards this notion then of femininity, because if masculinity mm. is that which you align with men in all the negatives, let's say, Many feminists would counteract that by saying femininity is as much a problem. The obligation that from the you know womb, I was supposed to somehow like ribbons and dolls. I, I didn't. I wanted a G.I. Joe when I was a kid. I played cowboys and Indians. But these are the things that I played hockey on the streets of, of, of Ontario, Canada with the boys. Um, to the detriment of my brother, at a certain age, I far exceeded his capacity in hockey, which meant that he was teased because his sister played better. So I skip back to a talk Greer gave in 2018, I believe it was an interview on Newsnight, where she talks about the problem of women's struggles today is being pitted in terms of what men do. And she has great empathy, much like what your organization is seeking out to understand what men are facing, because she sees the problem isn't that men original sin. In fact, she criticizes feminists who demonize men, who demonize the penis, who maintain that rape is the absolutely worst thing that could ever happen to you. She says, I was raped. It wasn't the worst thing that happened to me. And she goes off and she makes comparisons. She says men are conscripted into armies. I mean, you look at child soldiers in the South Sudan. Is that a better life sentence than what she calls, Greer calls this a fuck. That's what she called rape, okay? Now, agree or disagree with Greer, there are issues that she raised that I think do get sidestepped by some, if not many, feminists. And that comes back to the way that masculinity is demonized, femininity as well, but we're not looking at the structures that create masculinity and femininity, right? Why are boys being applauded for, let's say in Canada, they are encouraged to play hockey and every parent who sends their child to play hockey knows quite well they're sending their kid to get into fights because hockey post-1970s Canada is much more about the fights that happen on the ice rink than the actual game itself. And I've talked to parents in Canada who get very worried about sending their kids to play high school hockey because they know that might result in their child losing teeth. So we've got this double matrix of where gender is here. We know it's a social construct and we know that it's foisted upon boys and girls, both masculinity and femininity, mind you. On the other hand, we know the reality of that tends to be deadly for women in terms of domestic violence, right? How do we get to the bone marrow here of where gender is both a social construction and the material reality on the political front in terms of domestic violence. Things, things. I'm, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in God. I don't believe in the metaphysical. But I know that they have material impacts. I don't. You know, money is an abstract concept with material impact. Gender is an abstract concept which is inculcated, but it has multiple material impacts. 
I, I, I don't see a con there's no contradiction in in that for me. In that, a, a, if we were to concoct concoct a political um, notion today, just just between us, uh, that was absolutely wildly absurd, but that had certain implications for some groups of people, and it gained currency and traction socially. Then our ideas that we just cooked up almost for a laugh would, would they, they have material impact it might be to the detriment of huge numbers of people so so yeah that i'm not entirely sure whether i took the point was that how do we uh, balance those the the facts that on the one hand gender is a social construction on the other it has at times lethal material impact if i is that is that have i took the meaning right well yes and the Absolutely. And the fact that, let's just take it a step further, I acknowledge, as do most people, that domestic violence vastly affects women far more than men. In fact, mm -hmm. the minuscule numbers of men who are victims of domestic violence at the hands of women are generally not killed because of it, where the inverse is true. However, many people, including the likes of Jordan Peterson, I'll bring him up here, would say that there's a larger social matrix to be assessed. Let's begin with the way that parents, including mothers, raise boys, right? Because these, these notions of masculinity do come historically to us and culturally to us, but we repeat them. So it's my role as a mother to teach my child, you don't hit, right? And my role as a mother to teach my child, my daughter, that wearing a dress is not obligatory for her to be accepted by her mates because skip two years back, I sent her to school with trainers she chose. And at school, they made fun of her because she was wearing boys' trainers. Well, how do you get out of that? Because, I mean, they were dark blue with an orange swoosh. And let's go beyond the fact of Nike and the political conundrum it creates in Southern Asia. But the fact is yeah. that she knew at the age of six that somehow, I mean, I'm putting new in quotes here, that she was wearing boys' trainers. And I had to explain to her that they're just trainers. So the codifying of gender, be it toxic masculinity or super fluffy white kitten wanting to have children femininity, is imposed upon children. And while I see the devastating effects of masculinity and femininity, I can't separate those effects from the way that we, as men and women, and boys and girls reproduce that. What is the way out of reproducing that? Obviously, your 10 dialogues for boys and young men and those working with them, the program that Men at Work has implemented is one answer. And it's a great answer. In fact, I'm wondering if your 10 dialogues was a response to Jordan Peterson's list uh, in his book. And no. <laughs> it, okay. <laughs> and also, aside from programs like yours, how can the average person listening to us understand their involvement in reproducing the social myths of gender. And I, I mean, beyond the transgender debate, mind you, I'm talking about the fact that I'd even say that there are myths about domestic violence. I give you an example. Same-sex domestic violence amongst lesbian couples is as high as it is for heterosexual couples. This is an inconvenient truth that a lot of feminists do not wish to address. Now, I had this discussion with Magdalene Burns, and she said to me, but women are not killed by their female spouses. True. 
And that's largely because their female partners or spouses are not double their size. So if we're not looking at death, but we're looking at violence itself, just violence, is it such, Michael, that boys are more prone to violence? Or is it that violence is affecting death because of the size differential between men and women? Therefore, women, according, and I'm giving you an MRA line here, and I'm playing the devil's advocate, that women too hit women too are violent. Women too have other forms of, let's say, emotional violence, which is what the MRIs would say. What can you speak to about the way that violence is taught to young boys and men, where you don't see this as being taught to young girls and women? Well, uh, just to restate exactly what you just said, violence is taught to boys and and young men in a way that it isn't taught to girls and, and women. It, that is a, a, a fundamental historical truth. Certainly the cultures of which I'm aware, there may be some around the globe where that is not the case, but certainly uh, in the Anglosphere and, and you know, in, in the Euro- Western European cultures with which I'm most familiar, uh, you know, um, I spent time in Italy, France, Spain, um, the States, that is how we are brought up. That Those are the toys we're given with, those are the heroes we have. Those are the responses we're told are appropriate. You just go back, you're talking about playing hockey. Um, sort it out in the playground, you know, uh, stand up, not stand up for yourself, but in the sense of, you know, knock him out. Uh, don't stand for that. Man up, grow a pair. This is uh, a bombardment of instruction on how to be, <clears throat> how to be the social iteration that is supposed to be appropriate for your set. So fundamentals, uh, truth, perhaps banal, boys are taught that violence is a response to challenge. It's an appropriate response, as is anger. Uh, but at the same time, other responses are not appropriate, such as uh, becoming you know, sad, upset, talking about that. Uh, I'm not somebody who fetishizes crying, because I think manipulative and abusive people can cry at will. I don't think tears necessarily equal a liberation but they certainly are part of a of a healthy human human existence and it and should be you know expressed as and when um the, the authentic feeling arises so uh go, i would suggest that anybody listening to this uh, spend some time in a toy shop or, or, or a shop that sells birthday cards and just start looking just 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 kind of try and enter with a, a, an open mind, say what messages are being transmitted here to boys of two, three, four, five years old and girls of two, three, four, five years and onwards. Why do we know instinctively which clothes, which uh, toys, which books, which birthday cards, which whatevers are for who? And we have to ju- just start to unpeel the layers of our own assumptions, which are really difficult because because normality is normality for whatever that is for for an individual. But we just have to enter with a critical spirit, look at the places and the moments where um, young people and children, young children, are introduced to what is expected. I'm going to move because somebody's drilling in the next room. Sorry about that. <laughs> Just in case the drill comes through the wall, uh, going to shift. Um, so yeah, I, I, I've I've uh, gone on websites with uh, 
children, young lads, young girls as well, actually, some mixed mixed cases, and just looked at uh, toy store websites, looked at the messaging, the words that are on T-shirts, and then you just you, then just to give um, to give a small understanding of the processes of um, inculcation, of indoctrination, and of separation, because the separation of male and female. Um, as types of human beyond the physical is the fundamental goal of patriarchy, as I understand it, is to show that we have collective common ground in terms of our abilities, what is appropriate for us, what, what we should expect as men, and women have other things, and that is beyond the physical. Um, and that, that, that plays out in later relationships because of our expectations of what is our right, what is our birthright, in a sense, socially and culturally. Um, and that may well be to, to have the last word, to to be dominant, you know, be the, the man of the house. Watching what is being sold for two children, even adolescents, the kind of video games or virtual reality games that boys play as opposed to girls is starkly different, for sure. I would also venture to say, I've written about this, in fact, Try to buy a girl anywhere over the age of, well, from birth onward, actually, a T-shirt or a shirt that does not have something on it that's akin to love, hearts. There are shirts, so many that say, love me. And I have a hard time buying clothes for my daughter because I don't want her to be a walking billboard of quote unquote femininity. And this, this idea that she exists only as a piece that needs to fit into a masculinist vision, a puzzle. And you go to the boy section of the shirts, they get great shirts. I do buy my daughter a lot more of these boy shirts, not the ones that have cars on them, not the gun, you know, whatever, or superhero ones, but I do get her the ones with dinosaurs on them. I mean, they're far more interesting. I've written t-shirt companies. I've said, why can't you make this line for girls? You have great products. They're well-built but really flowers and hearts, unicorns? Look, come on, let's get real. And in fact, you'll notice that girls' clothes have an enormous branding towards imaginary creatures like unicorns and rainbows. Well, rainbows are real, but come on. So girls are always put into that frame of desire for the male subject viewing her. Boys are put into a frame of action and empowerment and authenticity. Girls are always, their clothes, their toys are about fitting into a cultural objective. So, you know, when I see the changes happening over the past 30 years of marketing towards boys and girls, it has gotten worse, not better. In the 1970s, when I was growing up and when you were also a child, it was great. It was the era in the US and in Canada, there was Marlo Thomas, who had this initiative, Free to Be You and Me. It was also an album, a record of songs that was participated in by many stars to basically undo gender. And this came at the heels of you know, Gloria Steinem and all the other feminists of that ilk. Now we've gone backwards, and it's a clear backwards. Now, some people will say, but Margaret Thatcher, you know, and then... This is where I step back to Jermaine Greer, because she says very clearly in her 2018 interview, we need to be questioning the structures. Why are we applauding when women get into a certain armed service that heretofore was 
uh, barred from. And now we're supposed to say, oh, now that's equality. We should be asking not why women aren't in that, but why that even exists. These are the masculinist visions, war, conscription, bombardments. Look at what's happening in Yemen. The fact that I find myself on my wall currently on Facebook, go there. There's a current debate about Trump being worse than Biden. And I'm like, they're both bad. And Biden having a 50 year long record of voting for signing off on acts that have killed millions uh, between Iraq and Afghanistan that have involved the displacements of tens of millions of people. Think of Yemen, think of South Sudan, think of Syria and beyond because he was alive and voting during the Iran-Contra affair and during just the Contra affair itself and the US involvement in Central American despots from El Salvador to Nicaragua to Honduras skipped down the border. I mean, it goes on and on. So we're talking about devastation that's affected by POTUS number idiot, Trump, and then the new guy. I find these discussions of who's better or worse for women or for black people, frankly, useless because we're not looking at the larger structural problems. Can you speak to us about how Men at Work is addressing masculinity, both in your program and even some of the discussions that you do have with young men and boys about the pressures they face. Because what I think is missing, and this is, hate me for saying it, but I think what the feminists are missing out is empathizing with the state in which men and boys, especially boys, are put growing up, because I don't see that they have a ripcord to a parachute out of this quite easily which is why I'm very impressed with your program and others who are trying to address the kind of subjectivity that boys are put into. Are they really patriarchal figures at the age of eight being told that they can do anything, for instance? Are they really oppressors of girls because they are given pats on the back for pulling a girl's hair ribbons, for instance? What are the ways that boys and men are, are struggling to exit from this very toxic socialization. Okay. Um, the point and my, my goal in the work that I do is to have very frank, honest conversations with groups of young men um, aimed at raising consciousness collectively and reciprocally as well, because I think any facilitator of any work like this has to be absolutely open to shift their own thinking and not see themselves as a transmitter of some kind of hypodermic uh, truth against which they are insulated. Uh, but the idea is to raise consciousness, to create space to think critically uh, about what it means to be a boy, a young man, in a world which has very fixed expectations that go back generations and and to be conscious of oneself to be conscious of the dynamics between peers who may be male or female and and looking forward into later life being conscious of the impacts of of our behavior on women and girls and on other boys and men um it, so I would say that raising consciousness, uh, instilling curiosity, uh, working on um, understanding what empathy 
feels like, looks like, and how we would apply it practically in, in a range of situations is a, an, a reasonable and important and necessary thing to do with boys and young men. And it doesn't happen. That is why I do what I do, because I see an absolute gap in the, in the UK school system. These conversations do not take place. That's the fundamental spur for what I do. I'm trying to do something which currently does not happen in a systematic way. And so that, that, that's a kind of slightly prosaic critique of the, of the UK English and Welsh education system. Uh, but I, I would be surprised that if in France or Portugal or Ghana or uh, New Zealand, there were meaningful conversations held by professionals who work with boys and young men over time about the the component parts of the cultural ideal of masculinity to which they are exposed. I think the, the I think those conversations tend to happen uh, in response to uh, incidences which have arisen, and I think we've got to move way past that kind of reactive sticking plaster, uh, merely punitive approach to dealing with, um, you know, multiple manifestations of, of, of violence. Um, so, so I've created a program, there may be others around the world and may even be others in the UK, uh, and that's great, but we, we really need to have national and international conversations about how do we have systematic conversations uh, that are meaningful and respectful and collaborative with boys and young men about how to navigate life safely for them and, and how we can, in our navigation of our lives, be safe to be around. Because these are, these are fundamental things. We want to be safe. We want other people to be safe. And it's clear that by refusing to critique patriarchal structures that is never going to happen um, so in an ad hoc way i've kind of devised this program which i deliver every week with boys and teen teenage boys um, in my small way it's tiny i'm you know i i'm making no great claims for this it's tiny but it is gathering some interest be because there is a huge lack of something which is not ad hoc and which is not responsive and which is not sorry reactive uh, and which has got a strategic understanding of how the messages of society do you know um, coalesce into a world view which is not necessarily in the best interests of boys and young men or indeed you know the women and girls in their lives whether they're straight or gay actually as well this is not a purely uh, hetero uh, centric approach. This is for, for any, any young man. You're listening to Savage Minds, and we hope you're enjoying the show. Please consider subscribing. We don't accept any money from corporate or commercial sponsors, and we depend upon listeners and readers just like you. Now, back to our show. Well, I'm thinking to the 1968 British film with Malcolm McDowell, If. I remember when I saw that I had not yet lived in the UK, but it struck me to the core because 
in that film, you see the toxicity of masculine culture amongst men or boys themselves. How does that situation, which according to friends of mine who had been in schools just like that, this was a reality and continued. It was sort of a legacy, a pecking order to establish males amongst themselves. We see this on the football pitch. We see this in corporate spaces. We also see women fighting that, what they call the glass ceiling, to be just like that. So we're seeing that masculinity isn't something that only men do to each other, but now women strive for in that quote-unquote feminism that they activate. How can we maybe understand better the relationship between this form of masculinity as boys are inculcated and the ways in which those messages have become sort of larger social messages of success for women to succeed? They must be dog-eat-dog, you know, let's go and get to the top of that pyramid. In a way, I'm asking you to make a critique of how masculinity intersects with capitalism. That's the... (laughs) That's a really good question, obviously, um, and it, and it, in some in some cases it's a very fundamental question. Um, uh, yeah, I, I guess what we have to understand what what we mean in a in a sense about the values of capitalism, which are kind of um, individualistic. They're non collaborative. They are they uh, emphasise uh, extraction, exploitation, uh, maximisation of profit, which which uh sidelines and suppresses more commun- communitarian values and objectives and priorities uh so, so yeah they sit very nicely together i i'm not expert enough to talk about the historical link uh or to speculate that masculinity as a as a, a negative framing of male existence cannot or has not ever existed beyond capitalism because uh, I, I suspect that it has um, certainly in the modern form of capitalism um, so I, I'm I'm not going to pretend to be a historical expert in the, um, the parallel development of masculinity as we know it now and capitalism as we know it now but I will say that I can see uh, a huge amount of uh, interdependence. Uh, there's huge similarities in in the marginalisation of uh, empathy. Uh, in, in fact, empathy is irrelevant to capitalism. You, you could even say it's antithetical to capitalism, uh, despite you know the the efforts of uh, major corporations to uh, come across as as being caring, uh, which is usually just another marketing ploy, or as they read as they read the slight developments in in culture and they try to be ahead of those curves or to or to profit from them effectively. Uh, so yeah, ca- capitalism marginalises. Uh, the aspects of humanity which I believe uh, are our best, which are empathy, collaboration, and uh, re- refu- and sustainability. As and masculinity t- does the same. It prioritizes the male um, social presence, the male need uh, over that of uh, of women and girls. And and to do that, to sustain masculinity, you do need to really bypass empathy. You have to actively uh, propagandize against them. 
think, and that takes us back to our toys and our fairy stories and our t-shirts and all of that stuff that children encounter as they begin to walk through the world. They're surrounded by messages everywhere, uh, and, you know, the visual language and, 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 the, and the grammatical one as well. Um, just to recap, I think what I'm saying is that, yeah, masculinity capitalism both rely on the suppression of what is best in humans. We view masculinity and this, let's call it male culture, as something to be dealt with. But I don't think that we can deal with that without also assessing the other side in the way that women are part of that, in the way that we participate in it. We want to climb up that masculinist ladder of power. We raise our boys to be brutes. I'm not saying all of us, and I'm not even saying most of us, because I think most parents, men included, try to raise their children to do the right thing, as it were. But as many parents will tell you, and I was told this before I had my kids, it's stronger than you think. You can say no to the Barbie dolls, but they're going to come back and ask until you break down and get them the damn Barbie doll in terms of girls. And the boys will do the same thing. So it seems that culture is a very large force to be reckoned with. But at the same time, parents are the ones raising their kids. Is there a way that parents can collectively push back against the pink rows of toys on the shelves and the guns for boys and the various gimmicks that show boys that they're nothing but agents of reciprocal capital wealth? Sure, there are. First, I just wanted to pick on something, you, you, uh, and I'll come back to that in terms of practical activity action that parents, carers, and family can, can take. But just something you're talking about that that speaking up thing. But in the UK, the um, rape has been virtually decriminalised here by de facto decriminalised. There are barely any prosecutions. It's like 0.5 reports uh, in in prosecution. So. The onus there, I don't see that on, on girls and women. I see the onus there on the judiciary, which is a function of the patriarchal state to get its fucking act together and to be, and, and to be deeply, properly, thoroughly overhauled. <laughs> That's where I see the onus. So I, I, don't, I, I don't place any onus or guilt or, or blame on the, the speaking up or not at any particular point um, whether in the moment or years later, because what you're looking at is a machine that really simply doesn't give a fuck. So you think that most women who don't report sexual assault and rape are not doing so because they are already defeated with the knowledge that it will go nowhere and they will lose days of their lives, if not months and years, in a process that will leave them without anything. I, I'd say that's the truth for, for a huge number of women. I mean, the other week I was, um, was in a webinar and a, a, a young woman was speaking um, uh, and she'd been raped and her father was a senior uh, policeman in, in London and they spent, I think, a week talking about it all day, every day. Really, really, he he was trying to advise what was best. He was saying, I'll support you in every way. They really, They really thought and and the outcome of his knowledge as well of the internal workings of of the the judiciary and the cps the crime prosecution service and what his daughter would go through i mean they collectively decided not to proceed with that and that's that's a really damning uh just single instance but the the 
the statistics on, on rape reporting and prosecution in, in the UK are um, one couldn't read from them that there is a serious um, machinery to support rape victims. You could only assume the contrary. So that, I just wanted to pick up on that point specifically. Is that I, I would always place the onus on a on the man who decides to rape, but b on the men usually, but not always, but usually the men in the in the CPS, the police, and the judiciary who, who fail women and girls uh, multiply thereafter. Um, in, in terms of the, bro the broader involvement of women in uh, articulating, I suppose, or sustaining patriarchy uh, or misogynistic values or sexism or, or stereotypes more broadly, well, we, we are all born into the world we're born into. And I think we all are expected and pressurized to believe what is convenient and suitable and expedient for us to believe. And, and we're exposed to multiple kind of uh, coercive forces, uh, however subtle they may be to do that. So yes, um, women seeking to be the CEO of banks or mining companies uh, is basically just, a, or, or field marshals or generals or whatever it may be. It is exactly as you say, it is, um, just a rebranding, a reframing of, of a patriarchal structure, which is, you know, um, male-centric for, for centuries, millennia. Um, it indicates some kind of change, but I, I, I think I agree with you, is that it, it doesn't indicate any form of challenge to the structure. Uh, and, the, and the structure is hierarchical, it is uh, extractive, and it's, it's capitalistic. So, it could be the case that all women, all CEOs of all petrol companies or mining companies were women. And people might, some people might see that as a, as a fantastic thing. But if they're still doing what they do, which is uh, derives from that template of centuries old kind of patriarchal domination, then there is no revolution there. There is, there is no change. There is, there, there is, um, merely a kind of a, a respray, uh, which I, 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 I think we're on the same track there, I believe. Like uh, Margaret Thatcher, uh, somebody I was familiar with as a, as a youngster, she was my prime minister at the time. Um, lots of things about um, female politicians is, is often they draw out a lot of misogyny in uh in men who seem to be very right on it's particularly right wing politicians, female politicians it's not long before critiques of them from men to uh, uh, become sex-based and be and reveal a certain misogynistic kind of approach to women per se and they're often very glad to be able to vent their their ire and their spleen at women who they think they're allowed to be misogynistic towards because they're of a different political persuasion, but they wouldn't be like that to left-wing women or liberal women. They're only like that to right-wing women. And then, and you know, you've, we've all seen that on Twitter. And that that spills over into the whole turf thing as well, where I'm a good guy, I just hate these women. You're thinking, mate, you don't. You just hate women. And you are ringing the bells of joy because you found a way of doing that publicly. So I don't criticize 
women for seeking positions of influence and power and high remuneration within the structure we have, but I reserve the right to say I don't think it's a, a transformative sign in, on, in and of itself, and that it may, in fact, in some cases, divert attention from um, harmful natures of the structure in which they appear to be um, taking power. In the follow-up of human rights abuses in many countries, and I'm thinking to Rwanda, there was a system called the Gachacha courts. And this was used because of the court system being backlogged with human rights abuses in terms of death, that they, they took on a lot of the rapes in these courts. These were more informal systems that were used to give recognition to the victims that something had been done to her. And I've thought about this over the years, especially since Greer's vituperation of the court system and the way that rapes are very unlikely to ever be prosecuted because we need evidence to convict someone. Might there be a more social environment like the Gachacha courts of Rwanda that could be set up in countries like the UK and other countries as well, where there could be a dialogue where women can face the person who raped them and the person who raped them can face their accuser and have some kind of, albeit less penal system of dealing with rape. Because part of me is thinking, yes, rapes are a reality and it's a sad reality that we all have to have that discussion with our daughters when they're old enough to inform them about how to handle dealing with men in a presence that is secluded, on a date, you name it. Many rapes, as Jermaine Greer also points out, most, she says, occur within marriage. And we know that rape wasn't even conceded as a crime within marriage in the United States until the 1980s. I believe it was 1984. In the UK, it was even later. So how do we assess violence when it's been systemically imposed upon women within marriage, let's say, within the, the date rape, right? Well, you were on a date or your reckoning of being in Italy. There was a famous case in Italy where a woman was found to have not been raped. Guess why? She wore jeans, right? This was Naples, <laughs> go figure. So if you wear jeans, well, you're asking for it. And we've seen this over the recent 50 years of history of women being made into the victim a second time through the court system. Might it be even more instructive for boys and men to know that if they rape, that instead of the unlikelihood that they will ever face a prosecutor or a judge, that there would be a likelihood that they would face a kachacha type system? As a man, I would never suggest, I, I, I cannot comment and I would not comment on uh, fundamental change to the way that rape is dealt with in the country that I live in, because uh, all I see is, is deep, absolute and intentional failure. So I, I don't think, uh, oh, I'm just thinking about Derek Chauvin. I mean, he, he needs he needs the accountability which is being visited upon him finally, which is extremely rare. The accountability has to be uh, a demonstration that the legal system uh, as it stands, works and is in the interests of all citizens. Uh, I don't think some one one could say why why don't 
why don't we have a different system? Because this one's fucked up. This does, doesn't work. Why don't we have a different one where Derek Chauvin meets George Floyd's family? I, I don't know. I don't I don't feel that. That's not that doesn't resonate with me in any way. I say let's fix the legal system, make it work, make it work. And I do wonder if we're addressing crimes against women in an appropriate way. Now, what your organization is doing to me is the answer. Why deal with crimes when we can deal with the root of the crimes? We can do with the root of violence. Can you speak to us about some of the cases of boys and young men that you deal with, the pressures they face to reproduce what the feminists might call toxic masculinity? Because I think it's really unclear to some men who might be listening to this, how masculinity is put into the blueprint of their lives from day one? Sure. Uh, I think I've probably worked uh, over time, like rather than just as one-off sessions, which I've done a lot of as well, which I try and avoid now. Uh, I've probably worked with 300 young men, I would say, in the last five years. Things that have arisen, they really cover the spectrum of tracking this thing called uh, so collective socialization through masculinity. Simple, simple start. Um, young men uh, in England, when you're in year nine, so you're about 13, you choose your, your subjects that you're going to specialize in, usually seven, eight things called GCSEs, used to be called at O-levels, uh, and they're the things that you're going to study for the rest of your school time. Quite a few young boys uh, have said that their choices were influenced by the perceived masculinity or femininity of the subject matter, which means that and then you start talking to teachers of art, music, drama, and foreign languages, modern, you know, French, Italian, Spanish, German, tends to be the case in England. Uh, and, it, and they go off a cliff and then go off a further cliff at the age of 16 when you finish your first round of compulsory education. And then you move on to the second round, which is called sixth form. You do it A-levels in, in England. And that's usually 16 to 18 education. Um, and barely any young men do art, drama, music, barely any young men do modern foreign languages. Simple, just a simple, uh, that, that's, that's not killing anybody. It's not, uh, it's not brutal, it's not uh, viscerally kind of noteworthy, but it tells a real story. There is something about culture transmitting messages to those boys and young men either through their families or through their friends or through a complex of all of those things that tell them that expressive modes are not appropriate for boys and young men that's one part of it okay just a part of that there people are dissuaded from being expressive and artistic uh, but and and therefore they choose whatever physics engineering you know, men's subjects, in inverted commas. Uh, and, and that's come across a lot. I've come across that more times than I, I ever thought I would, but yeah, yeah, that, that, that's a thing. Uh, the other, I'll go right to the other end of the spectrum. Um, not go to the middle of the spectrum first round. So I remember last year I spoke to the young man who's 15, um, difficult, you know, underpri underprivileged, disadvantaged, chaotic home life. Uh, his mum uh, had a heroin problem and was not in the scene. His dad was in and out of prison. He wasn't in the scene. Uh, so he's brought up by his uncle, decent guy, ex-military. You know, uh, by all accounts, the, the teachers who knew this young man said he was, he was, you know, 
that his uncle turned up for parents evening he was interested uh, no worries no fears uh, he was fed he took part in sports he had friends he was good looked after um, but in a conversation with the young man, um, we were talking about clothes, some of this pink blue bullshit that we've mentioned earlier. Uh, it was kind of very gross, crass indicators of um, gender allegiance or affiliation. And uh, he said that he wasn't allowed to wear colours. He could only wear black, white or blue because his uncle, being, being of uh, this kind, he said he, because he's an he's a ex-military, he said he doesn't like soft colours. And this lad had once bought a T-shirt that I think was Canada, orangey colour, maybe tangerine, you know, the taboo, taboo territory for your man. And uh, his, his uncle had said, take that off, uh, I'll buy you two new ones. And he and so he took it off and he said, here's some money, go and get two new ones, give him like way too much money to correct, in his mind, what was wrong clothing for a 15-year-old boy because it was effeminate i don't know gay i don't know you know these are the things aren't they these are the connotations they're rarely spelt out and and it suits a lot of people to leave them at the level of intuition you know that subliminal kind of understanding that is often not articulated it, it may be but but this young guy he he knew the com we were looking at t-shirts for girls and boys and what the difference was and why some people would buy this for a girl or that for a boy and he knew it he got it intellectually but he was in a situation where he owed a debt of thanks he felt and respect and gratitude to his uncle who was bringing him up in a way that he thought was appropriate and proper um and he he probably meant no harm but that meaning no harm doesn't mean that you do not enact restrictive and kind of um very narrow and and, and Quite depressing sort of modes of expression but he was worried that his charge his nephew would attract criticism perhaps more than men uh on the grounds of wearing colorful clothing that he he was not sufficiently masculine he wasn't man enough and now i'm thinking well i was thinking at the time is it really fear for him or is it fear for the for the uncle that it would refre reflect on his ability to reproduce masculinity and that's that's a fucking heavy conversation at 10 o'clock in the morning with a 15 year old lad <laughs> you know the debt of yeah. the debt of gratitude the social power the immensity of the history of that and the absurdity the absurdity of fearing color because because what you know how has colorful attire become inextricably linked in some cases and there are intersections of class here as well i'm not i'm not uh, unaware of that uh, and at age how have we got to the point where we are so pavlovian um that basic things like color will send us off into a tailspin um so i've talked about subject choice that's just like quite a banal simple thing and yet speaks volumes i think um also, that also speaks about lack of authenticity is that you are uh, trained into being inauthentic, an inauthentic person in that you are choosing things which are not your choice, but which you defer to the knowledge or the, or the knowledge of or the threat from others, perhaps, about what you want to do, how you want to study, learn, play, whatever it may be. Then we get onto the clothing thing, which I thought, strange, strange example, but I think, again, very telling. I am. And then others, I, I've, I've had a couple of young men who've been told to fight, not just 
sent to do a sport where they might fight, they'll be told to fight, uh, to settle family disputes uh, at 14, 15. And that's, that's, that's hard. That's hard to talk to. That's hard to unpick uh, because people love their parents. You know, we love mostly, you know, mostly we love our parents and carers. So we are conflicted when they ask us to do things, which I think we, you know, these young lads, they, they knew it was not the right thing to do, but it's the thing that was expected of them. Um, so these conversations can throw up all kinds of everything. Uh, and the small things you can talk about in great detail, uh, you know, talk about the, the, the coloured T-shirt. I talk about that with other groups and they go, yeah, yeah, wait a minute, that reminds me. And then then you've got an in. It's finding the, the small drill holes into the bigger thing. Sorry for pointing at the camera. <laughs> uh, it's finding those. That is the joy of the work, if I can use that work, in that they, it, it's about joining dots. It's about uh, peeling away layers of assumption, peeling away layers of, yeah, but that's just normal, isn't it? And, and giving the boys and the young men the ability there, and, and it sort of creates a space in a block, and then the light can start to come in, and then they can think, well, you know what, I will hesitate next time I'm in that situation, or I'm going to do that differently. Um, and that's the whole uh, the problem with preventative work is, of course, that you can't quantify it, and it's very difficult to uh, to persuade politicians to take on board because what they want, certainly in England, is they want to stand on the House of the Commons and say we've achieved an eight percent reduction in X. Now you can do that with some things, but you can't do that with things that haven't happened. It reminds me of the reason everyone's invited online site where now over 15,000 women, girls, have added their testimonies as to sexual violence, bullying, scapegoating, etc., at public and private schools in the UK. Going back to if with Malcolm McDowell, uh, you, you said there's a class issue here as well. But I'm thinking to a night years ago, a politician from London took me out for drinks and she told me about the Bullingdon Club. I had no idea what that was. So we see that it affects all echelons of class and wealth and poverty. Of course, it affects itself in different ways. And it's also masked by the wealthier. They can get away with it because so many of them are currently in our government, right? I wonder if someone listening to this might say, well, those are colors of shirts. How does that relate to sexual violence against women and girls? Oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Really good question. Um, the, the, well, also the boys that I, I talk to are, are basically watching porn from the age of 10, 9, could reel off 40 different categories from Pornhub. Uh, they get little to no sex education in school. They are playing GTA at the age of 10. So they uh, this is a, a, an interesting, horrible detail. Like last week, I took my kids up north to where I'm from, and we stayed in, a, in an apartment in a, quite a rough part of the town that I grew up in. Um, and there were some uh, women who seemed to be involved in prostitution, uh, walking around these streets. And my daughter saw one and she said, it's like GTA. That's what all the women in GTA walk like. 
uh, and that really struck me. <laughs> that that is well, GTA has got about forty million copies sold, I think, in its last iteration. God knows how many tens of millions of uh, boys have, have grown up playing that and Call of Duty, etc. So to come back is it's not just about colours of shirts. These these are just tiny ways in to conversations about the power of expectation, and that the power of expectation applies to modes of dress it applies to what degree you might do what kind of job you think is appropriate it also applies to your sexual behavior uh, which is taken from a script which is incredibly bonified um you know if you look at the work of gail dine she's way more eloquent than i ever will be on that on that front um so we we teach boys and young men to occupy a social space through an absolutely wildly diverse battery of, of means, whether it is uh, toys, jokes, songs, music, films, heroes, the whole thing, and, and, and personal, you know, known models like fa fathers, brothers, uncles, neighbours, family, friends, uh, politicians, the whole everything you see in here everything we see in here we are influenced by we we um i think there's a process it's called interpolation i think to drag that back from about 20 years ago at university something that something that calls to us i believe it is isn't it and that we feel called by um i might need to revisit that term because it's very relevant obviously to, to my in the, in the socialization of boys and young men but yeah it isn't just about t-shirts that's just it's just an interesting and tiny way in to look at, it's like seeing the world in a grain of sand if that's not too corny it's about social the power of social norms and and the gains and the cost because you gain two t-shirts you lose the one you want you gain the uh, uh the endorsement and the embrace of those around you but you lose your authenticity, your individuality. You could apply that to any situation, I think. But yeah, other other boys, women I've been worked in, I've been involved in uh, things like county lines, which is a, a, a criminal phenomenon in England. It may exist elsewhere, but it's where, because uh, I'm in a sort of semi-rural area, it's where boys with no criminal record, it's just mainly boys actually, usually about 14, 15, uh, are recruited by... Uh, much bigger criminals from bigger towns because they're kind of clean skinned and they're not known by the police. So they get recruited into moving drugs, weapons, things like that. Through the process of appeals to machismo, in some cases, it's actually a part of it. It's not, it, it tends not to be a direct threat, but they do come later because often so some of the young lads I've, I've worked with have been, have taken on a job, maybe to move something from somewhere, not very far a mile, they might get the offered 50 pounds or 100 pounds, but they'll be mugged on, on that first ever trip and then they're in debt to their employer, inverted commas. Uh, but the appeal is to, you know, don't be a pussy. You're, you know, you're, you're, a, you're a guy, you're a man, you can do this, it's easy. You know, and that is the appeal to the training that we've had in how to be a man. So there's this just just total and utter interweaving of the the expectations, the demands, and the rewards of masculinity. And that's part. That's really what the work I do is is to talk about that, unpick it, and give thinking space, and hopefully give the ability to resist and to delegitimise that amongst their peers 
and any kids that they may have in future. One thing that came up for me in the debates over transgender prisoners in women's prisons, men in women's prisons, was this. When you look at the statistics of who's being killed in the US, in the UK, around the world, most of the victims of male violence are males. And I think women need to understand the enormous depth of violence that's done both symbolically within culture and families and education as well, in order to come to some kind of productive measures that we can take even together. So you're having discussion with young men and boys about the histories that they face, their heritage, their, their standing in the world, especially now, lockdown, they are more than ever, boys in England are going to face hell to get a job. Will they face an easier time of getting a job than women? Mm, that's not bearing out when you see the numbers of girls in educa higher education are far higher than those of boys. Is there perhaps in what you're handling, dealing with these men and boys, a resonance, an, uh, an aftertaste of a culture that hasn't completely digested the fact that women and girls have equal rights and there's some kind of resentment that's lingering there. Oh, oh I would agree with, the, with that, uh, that there is a, a backlash against, against the acquisition of rights, whether they're fully equal or not, I think is probably, uh, because a right, a right is only equal if, if you can exercise it. And, and you know, if, if you don't have uh, a satisfactory response from the people to whom you seek, from whom you seek recourse, like we, to go back to the case of, of rape and sexual assault in the UK, that, then the right is abstract and notional, and, and rights have to be lived and they have to be uh, exercisable and exercised fully for them to have any sense. Otherwise, they're just something. It's like having a policy in a. In a it's like having a fire policy in a, in a government, uh, in a, an organization, but nobody knows where the policy is and all the, all the exits are blocked. You know, you could say, yeah, we've got a policy, but <laughs> it's the same with rights. Is it, if you can't exercise them or if you, when you try to exercise them, you, you encounter extraordinary kind of resistance or just simple failure, then uh, it's, a, it's a very moot point whether the right exists even. But, I would say, yeah, there is a there is a backlash. I, would, I think a lot of porn is a backlash against women's rights. I mean, it's a, a reassertion of male of male dominance, and 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 as such, literally and not just metaphorically, a, a source of propaganda. I think mean, it. I I, I I used to think that the porn is it was metaphorically propaganda for male supremacy. Now I think it's literally uh, propaganda, in that it its objective is to um to mobilize men as as individuals and uh, and as groups in the suppression of women's rights i think that is the case wouldn't it be great if men could react as swiftly to women's rights as they have to the proposal of a super league <laughs> yeah oh 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 jesus yeah so, so men have been in tears men have been in, in tears and wailing and jumping on cars and talking about the betrayal of working class traditions 
even Boris himself, who couldn't give a flying fuck about football at all, or anybody, or anything apart from himself, uh, has been pretending. I think, no, leave him out of it, that was mere pretense. Some men seem to have been really upset. And as a, as a kind of disinterested observer, yeah, it's, it's capitalism gone, gone wild and it breaks, you know, it breaks traditions with communities. Fair enough. I'm not going to lose any sleep over it. But so, but some men, hundreds, uh, thousands of men online, and it, it have been demonstrating. And I think it would not be overly speculative to suggest that most of those men have never done that um, about the fact that women have to walk around with keys in their hands or get accused of inviting sexual assault etc 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 this is what kills you really is that you you can see the capacity for outrage and then you see the incidence of outrage and the mismatch between what one should be outraged about and what one is outraged about that's a real killer Oh, 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 oh,